Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to dive deep into your word and to consider uh, this issue. And we pray that you would enlighten our minds, open our hearts, and uh, help us to see what an amazing provision you made for the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, uh, very quickly, by way of review... Um, cessationism is the argument that uh, all. Uh, 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 first, let me start with continuationism. Continuationism is the uh, argument that uh, all of the gifts of the Spirit, continuationism, um, continue today. They're relevant today. And cessationism is that extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, uh, prophecy, tongues, miraculous healings, has ceased. And the argument, uh, the, the first part of the argument is essentially an argument from redemptive history. Uh, who can tell me what redemptive history is as I defined it last week? Who was here last week? Unique, like non-repetitive acts. Yes. Things. So unique, uh, unrepeatable events um, in uh, biblical history, right? Um, and this includes, for example, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, right? We're not supposed to do that in every generation. And this is to be distinguished from uh, normal ongoing events in church history like evangelism, missions, um, a pa- uh, what is it, the, the Lord's Supper. We're supposed to do this all the time. Hey. Oh, she's with... Uh, mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, if we could draw a graph this is the Old Testament. Well, let me put it in another color to set it off. Um, this is the Old Testament. This is the life of Jesus. This is uh, the work of the apostles. Okay? Uh, a cessationism says that this period right here is redemptive history. And from this uh, time forward, it's just ongoing history, or church history. Right? Um, and therefore, this this era, this apostolic age, is unique, it is unrepeatable, and everything associated with it has therefore ceased. Right? Um, and the first, uh, I want to just recite a few key verses from, that we looked at last week. First is Ephesians 2.20. If you guys remember, um, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, right? Very key verse. And that word foundation, Paul is evoking a metaphor, right? If you think of the church as this structure... The foundation layer is the apostles. Okay, and how many foundations does a building have? Only one. So Ephesians 2.20 clearly tells us that the apostles were only given for one time, one stage in church history. It is a foundational stage, never to be repeated again. Um... And we know this just by studying the very office of apostleship. They were personally commissioned by Jesus. 
You have to be sent by Jesus. You can't appoint yourself. You know, none of us are apostles. You have to personally have been appointed because you're Jesus' designated representative. And then they are eyewitnesses, right? Apostles are unique witnesses of the resurrection. And, and therefore, it's restricted to the first generation. It has to be the first generation because only the first generation were eyewitnesses. Does that make sense? And therefore, the, apost- the apostolate has ended. Uh, do you have, good, you brought your hand out. Um, the next key verse is Acts 1.8, um, where Jesus says to his apostles, you will receive power of the Holy Spirit. Right? And that phrase, I said, is actually a very technical phrase. It's not power as in, like, extra gumption or, like, earnestness or courage. Of course, it's those things as well. But if you look at the if you look throughout Acts and if you look at what Paul says, for example, let me just, let me just refer to the, uh, to the verse. If you look at, for example, um, second page, uh, second column, Romans 15, what does Paul say, right? He says, um, uh, verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, right? So he defines it right there. The power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit of God is signs and wonders, okay? And then this is all the more reinforced in Second uh, Corinthians, and this will be the last uh, key verse, Second Corinthians 12, 12, where uh, Paul says the signs of a true apostle are signs and wonders. And therefore, this apostolic age is marked by signs and wonders. Okay? And therefore, okay, and therefore, uh, when this age ended, these signs and wonders, which are associated with the apostles, which confirm and support and attest to the apostolic work, also ended. You're supposed to bring your copy. Alright, good. Oh, yeah. All right, now the second argument, so that's the first argument, we already looked at that last week, this is all by way of review. The second argument is an argument from Revelation. Revelation is God's word, okay, that's my definition. That's not just my definition, this is, you know, this is the definition, right? Revelation is God's word to us, and... Uh, the, and in the New Testament, God speaks to his church through the apostles, okay? And we can see that in the first verse, Ephesians 3. Um, this would be the, uh, the third page, first column. So let's have Justin read Ephesians 3, 5. 3, uh, 1 through 5. <clears throat> For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of your dead child, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Let me just pause really quickly there. The word mystery, does anybody, by the way, know what 
uh, Paul uses is very uh, is very unique to Paul. He speaks of this mystery all the time. Does anybody know what the word mystery here means? We typically think of mystery as oh, you know, it's like esoteric knowledge. That's not the way Paul means it. It means something that was hidden in the past, but now it's been revealed. What has been revealed? Anyone? Huh? Yes. So mystery is just Paul's way of describing the gospel. The gospel was kind of murky and not very clear in the Old Testament, but now it's clear and made known. So the mystery was made known to me by what? Revelation. Paul is a recipient of revelation. He's a channel or conduit of revelation. Keep reading. Uh, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. There you go, right? The Spirit, I mean, the, the apostles have a uh, unique a ministry of the Spirit wherein they receive revelation, okay? Therefore, they are condu- Therefore, God speaks through the apostles, and this is why what the apostles teach is God's word to us. This is why when the apostles talk about things that Jesus never talked about, for example, circumcision. Jesus never said anything about circumcision. Huge controversy erupts in the church. Do believers have to be circumcised? The apostles say no. Now, why should we believe the apostles? Who are they? Because they're Jesus' designated representatives. They, through their channel, we receive God's revelation, God's word to us. By the way, Jesus didn't even write anything. So how do we even know what Jesus did or said or anything? It's only through the apostles. Uh, so that's why Second uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, um, can I have Harry read that for us? Yeah. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Yes. Uh, do, you need, do, you, do you ladies need a handout? Um, and therefore, uh, uh, the apostles' teaching here, teaching, okay, is the New Testament writings. Does that make sense? Okay, apostolic teaching is the New Testament writings. That is why the New Testament has authority, right? That's why Peter can say Paul's writing is the word of God, right? That's why we are to obey the New Testament, because we are obeying what? The apostles' teaching. And by the way, this is the argument for why the New Testament is a closed book. How do we know that there are no further... There are 27 books in the New Testament. How do we know that a 28th book, a 29th book, cannot be written right now? What's the argument? Is there a verse in the New Testament that says the New Testament is a closed book, no more further writings after the book of Revelation? There is no single verse in the New Testament that says that. And so what is the biblical argument? The biblical argument is the cessationist argument, which is that the New Testament writings is connected to the apostolic age. Right? How do we know that the New Testament has ceased? Because it is connected to the apostolic age, and the apostolic age is restricted to the first generation, and it has ceased. And therefore, no new writings. If somebody goes out there and says, "What I, I'm about to pen you guys a letter, and I, I want you to staple it to your New Testament, you have to say, you are mistaken. <laughs> because, and he will say, why? What Bible verse? And he will say, the New Testament writings is connected to the apostolic age. I'm sorry. It is, it is over, okay? Does that make sense? And so, already, 
everybody, all Christians, already depend on a cessationist argument to believe in the in the in the closeness of the New Testament. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, by the way, the very fact that the apostles teaching, you know, they say they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and you see that in Paul a lot of times. For example, in, uh, in, in Corinthians, he talks about it a lot, but in Galatians, he says, I'm astonished that you've abandoned my teaching. You know, he talks about my gospel. And it almost sounds egocentric until we remember that Paul is an apostle, and therefore it is uniquely as an apostle that he's teaching us this gospel. But if I said that, I want you all to be devoted to Michael's teaching. You know, I want you to sp- pour hours and think and study and meditate on Michael's teaching. You guys would say, okay, you are clearly unhinged. You're touched in the head, right? But Paul can say that. The apostles can, apostles can say that because they are what? Designated representatives. Not me, not you. And therefore, what I teach, but I teach based on the authority of the apostles. The apostles teach on their authority given to them by Christ. Does that make sense? Any questions or clarifying questions there? <coughs> All right, and when you understand that, you understand Jude chapter one verse three. Oh, where are we, Dan? Uh, can you read that for us? Uh, oh. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Yeah. So there's this language of once for all, right? That's a very pregnant once. For all. You know, do I ever say to you guys, I'm going to teach you guys the gospel once for all? No. It happens again and again every week, right? You guys are thinking, Pastor Michael says the same thing every week. Um, but what the apostles teach is uniquely once for all because it's a deposit. They hand it down to us. It's the apostolic teaching. It ends. Once for all. Apostolic age. It has ended. Now, so far, this is relatively non-controversial. Our charismatic brothers, and let me emphasize once again, our charismatic brothers, our Pentecostal brothers, our continuationist brothers, our brothers. We're not at all talking about heresy. We're not talking about, you know, um, um, orthodoxy in terms of, you know, what's central. We're talking about a relatively peripheral argument, okay? But, uh, 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 our con- so our charismatic brothers say, this stuff, I agree. I always want to say, so you're a partial cessationist, right? Okay, but they agree. Nobody contests this except wackadoos, right? Um, now, now, here's where we're going to enter the controversy. Um, because prophecy, and here's the argument I'm going to make. Prophecy is also revelation. Okay, and this is the logic of the argument, okay? If prophecy is revelation... Just like apostolic teaching, what does that mean? It means it happened once for all as a foundational layer for the apostolic age. And if that is the case, then it has also ceased. Does that make sense? I just want to clarify the argument I'm about to make before I prove it to you. Any clarifications on this point? All right. So, all right, this is the argument. So let me prove it to you. Ephesians 2, we've already read this, but let's read it again. Because Paul doesn't just say apostles. Uh, where are we? Can I have uh, Chelsea read Ephesians 2, 19-21? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Stop. 
Okay, it says built on the foundation. Remember the metaphor of of a church as a building. There's a foundation. Only one foundation. It doesn't repeat. Foundation means redemptive history. Okay, so the foundation is what apostles. That's all it says. Apostles. No, it says apostles and prophets. That's the argument. Apostles and prophets. Prophets is the foundation of the church, which means it is unrepeatable. Therefore, it is restricted to this apostolic age, which means it's open. Does that make sense? Any clarifying questions before we move on? I feel like that's that's the end. Okay, class is over. <laughs> All right, more proof, more evidence. I'll turn to the next column, Ephesians 3. Uh, we've already read this, but let's read it again. Um, Ashley. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. There you go. Prophets are agents, channels of God's revelation, and revelation has ceased. If we believe that revelation continues, then the New Testament is an open book and God continues to give us fresh revelation. But it hasn't. And therefore, the New Testament has ceased. I mean, the, the writing of the New Testament has ceased, and therefore, revelation has ceased, and therefore, apostles and prophets have ceased. Second uh, Peter, third chapter. Second Peter 3, 1, 2, 3? Yeah. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminding, reminder that you should remember... Uh, the the predictions of the Holy Prophet and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So let me focus your attention on verse 2. Paul says we should remember two things, the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of the apostles. Now, basically, he's saying we need to obey the prophets and we need to obey the apostles. Why? Because they have authority. Why do they have authority? Because their words is the revelation of God. And that authority is now encapsulated, inscripturated in the New Testament. And there is no living authority anymore. Does that make sense? There is no living prophets. Because if there are living prophets today, if there are living apostles today, we must obey them. By the way, this is the argument of the Catholic Church. The Pope is the apostle. Right, the 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 the, the uh, carry down the tradition of Apostle Peter. So Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, well, he's just resigned, but when he was still in power, we have to obey him. That's why when all Christians, Catholics, go before the Pope, what do they do? You kneel down and you kiss his ring, right? Because you're paying homage. He's an apostle. By the way, I don't think that that even happened in the New Testament. They're just making that up. But anyways, right? You're, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to obey them. Their writings is the very word of God. Does that make sense? We don't believe that because we believe that the New Testament alone is the authority. And if we believe the New Testament alone is the authority, we believe there is no more living authority 
no more human beings who have this power and this authority, which means cessationism. It has to mean cessationism. It means that apostles, prophets have ceased. The office is over. Now, before I go into the counter-arguments, and there are counter-arguments, reasonable counter-arguments, any questions or clarifying points? Chewy, chow, come on. Give me your questions. <laughs> Not yet? Okay, I, I could think of one. Uh, in the next box, you uh, you kind of paint out how the sensationalist and continuationist argument view prophecy. So I've been to conferences where like people will randomly walk up to you and be like, oh, wow. <laughs> you have, you have such a strong heart. You you're meant to lead, and then like, um, and, like and then people are like yeah, and stuff like that. And in a sense, like um, I think like a lot of the stuff that that like like prophets or whatever modern day prophets claim are very easily like it's kind of like if you read like a personality test, you're gonna take all the positive things and you're gonna be like, yeah, I could see that totally, right? Yeah, sure. So I could see that side of it. Sure. But at the same time, like um, there are there are there have been times where like people have said things to other people that I've heard that people have said things to me yeah. that are um, a bit specific. And sure. in my mind, um, part of me is kind of like, are they guessing? But part of me is also kind of like, when you say like the continuationists, like the prophecy is fallible. Um, so I'll get to that. Okay. So yeah. so so if cause if your question is based on that, let me get to it. Let me develop the continuationist rebuttal to what I just said. Sure, because you're, uh-huh. you're not necessarily saying that like a prophet would live a perfect life, right? Because none of the biblical prophets really lived like... like I'm not a- saying that, but I'm saying something else, and then, okay. and then we can interact, okay? okay? So, the continuation that says, let me retort. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, they have several counter-arguments. The first counter-argument, and the key verse here is Ephesians 2.20, okay? Because they look at that verse and they say, oh, that's a pretty powerful verse. Right? The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Right? What's the response to that? Well, one response is, okay, well, uh, the foundation is their role. They played a foundational role, but it's not talking about the actual office. The office continues. And my response to that, I mean, that's a little bit of a weaker argument. I'm going to get to the stronger argument later. But my, the, my response to that is, okay, but you can't separate apostles and prophets. Because if you say they just played a role, but the, but the office continues, then you're really saying apostle continues. You're, then you're with the Catholic Church, right? You're saying there's living apostles. So how do you separate apostles and prophets? You can't. They're connected. They're linked, right? So goes the apostles. So goes the prophets, right? So I don't know if you understood that objection, but I mean, it's relatively unimportant. Second counter argument. This is given by um, a theologian named Wayne Grudem. Let me write his name down. Wayne Grudem, very famous theologian. He wrote who? What famous book did he write? A lot of you guys already know. Systematic. Yes, theology. systematic theology. He was actually educated at Westminster Seminary. Um, he's, he's a Reformed Baptist. Very, very smart guy. Uh, so, you know, when I contend with him, you know, it's all total respect, right? I'm not saying, you know, he's dumb. Um, but he, he proposes an argument. He's a very famous continuationist because he's kind of like the big brain of the continuationist, right? He, he proposes this argument. He says, okay, so Ephesians 2.20 talks about prophets being the foundation. He says there are actually two kinds of prophets. He calls them prophet with a capital P, right? And they are the thus saith the Lord people, right? You know, they're like the Old Testament model, right? Right, they're like, this is the word of God. 
And everyone must listen and obey. They're like Isaiah. They're like Jeremiah, right? And then he says, there's a little prophet, little P prophet, lesser, lower level. And they're not, thus saith the Lord. Their, <coughs> their prophecies are more like intuitions that God gives you. And this intuition isn't perfectly um, accurate or perfectly factual. It can be mistaken. It's like impressions that you have. It's very intuitive. And a lot of times, it has this amazing insight and specificity, as Chow talked about. But a lot of times, it can be wrong. So it's fallible. And they say this lesser kind of prophecy, this is the one that continues. And so when he says the foundation of the church is built on the prophets, it's capital P, but not this. This is what, this is the New Testament prophecy. Continues. Does that make sense? Does that okay? Child, does that yeah. sound familiar? That, so, so I would say like, does that like, to that to me like I'm like oh cool like you have the gift of encouragement like <laughs> oh like like because so, some people like they're really good kids wouldn't be like oh you have the gift of like child like raising and stuff like that you just be oh you're really good with kids right <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. Like, I'm wondering is it just the way that they say it yes like, that that's what I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that so I definitely think you're right which is. Wayne Grudem and fellow continuation of Charismatics are describing something that doesn't need to be called prophecy. It could just be described as the gift of encouragement. Like, chow, you know, you're, you're very musical. And you say to me, Michael, you are a prophet. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I just, I can hear, <laughs> right? You know, I, so I'm encouraging you. Or I say, you know, chow, you know, I really think God, you know, wants you to uh, go in this direction. You know, this job, you know, not this job. I, I think this is this, this is the one for you, you know. You say, oh, Michael, you're a prophet. Oh, you don't have to say that. Just say, oh, you have insight, you know. And and so that's, a, that's the argument a lot of cessationists make, which is that, well, you're, this isn't prophecy. This is something else. This is this is encouragement. This is insight. This, you know, this. And so uh, let me, let me, um, let me address this. First of all, if you go to, passages like Ephesians 3, 5, and it's right there in that column, the first passage. It says it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, and you see that duo, right? Apostles and prophets. And, and again, I mean, there is no lower-level prophecy. I guess that's the argument I'm trying to make here. Where do you see this? Where? What's an example? Give us an example, Wayne Grudem, of a lesser, lower-level, intuitive, you know, Oh, Apostle Paul, I have this intuitive feeling. Oh, really? Where do we see an example of that? Give us an example. There is none. We'll get back to that later. He does actually have an example. Uh, well, I, I know some of the, um, the continuationist people, they, they'll make fun of what you just uh, presented as well, but but what about the ones where, like, kind of Chow says, really specific about things that no one else would I'll get to it. I'll get to okay. it. Um, and so, uh, Wayne Grudem has supporting biblical verses. Of course, he's a theologian. Trainer was Mr. He must have Bible verses, right? So, here are some of his Bible verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 14. Uh, 14 um, where are we? Uh, Marianne, can you read that? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Yeah, if you also look at uh, 1 Thessalonians, it says test prophecies. So, Wayne Grudem says, why would we have to weigh prophecies or test prophecies unless... Unless it was fallible, unless we had to verify whether it was, you know, accurate or correct, right? Um, here's my rebuttal to that. If you look at Acts chapter 17, remember Paul is preaching before the Bereans. And let me just 
you know, skip down to verse 11, uh, starting after the semicolon, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Bereans also weigh the apostles' teaching. Does that mean the apostles' teaching is fallible, can be incorrect, they're just intuition? No. To weigh what is said doesn't mean that it is potentially wrong. It's just, you're verifying whether it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? Is the, is Paul, is the Apostle Paul preaching truth? They have to verify it by connecting it to the Old Testament. And there's another reason why the New Testament frequently says, weigh, test, verify, because there is such a thing as, this is, I, and I think this is the Achilles heel of this argument, there's a, such a thing as, Paul's prophecy, okay? The New Testament warns us about this. Let's read 1 Corinthians 14. Um, no, I'm sorry, 1 John 4. Where are we? Uh, Marshall. Yeah. Um, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Okay, so there's that word again, right? Test the spirits. Why? Uh, to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Why are we to test? Because there is such a thing as false prophecy. And I think this is where the continuation argument, I think, really runs into major trouble. Because the continuation argument says this. A prophet can come to you and say, Oh, child, I have a prophecy for you. This time next year, you'll be married. And you're like, wow. And then you wait a year. You're like, oh. You know? And then one year turns around, you're not married. Now, am I a prophet or am I wrong? Am I a false prophet? And the continuation will say, well, you're still a prophet. You were just wrong. Okay? All right, now, now let's think this through, okay? A prophet can be wrong. That doesn't mean that they're not a prophet. Then what is a false prophet? What exactly is Paul <laughs> warning us about? Beware of false prophecy. What, what, what is it? Do you see what I'm saying? I mean... <laughs> It's, it, in philosophy, it's called non-falsifiable. They're basically saying prophecy is non-falsifiable. You cannot make it false. Because <laughs> prophecy, by its very nature, is often false. But that doesn't make it false prophecy. Well, I think they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. I mean, right? So what I would say is this. If a prophet says to you, this time next year you will be married, and they are wrong, I will say, you are a false prophet. You must die. <laughs> right, because you are opposed to God. You're agent of Satan. Away from me. In the Old Testament, you know what they did with false prophets? They stoned them. Do you know why? Because they are enemies of God. So, are charismatics willing to make this claim? I am a prophet. Okay, let us see then. Right? You better be accurate. Because did Jeremiah make a prophecy? And he said, Oh. Sorry, that was, I was mistaken. No, 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 no. You got me wrong, right? I, I, I was, I was, I, I, it was a vague impression, vague impression. No. They always say with absolute authority, thus saith the Lord. Charismatic prophets had better say that then. Because, and then, again, Wayne Grudem and others were like, well, no, 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 there's no lesser prophecy. Listen, when, when somebody says, you know, I have a prophecy, I believe, uh, I have a prophecy, you should take this job, Eric John, not that job. Why don't people just say this? I feel like God is uh, uh, leading me to tell you to go for this job. I'm not denying that God doesn't lead people. I'm not denying that God doesn't, you know, give you impressions. That's why you should pray. You know, God, should I marry this girl or not? You know, God, should I take this job or not? Should I, uh, what should I do in this situation? I'm not saying God is silent. 
you know, God can lead you, can, can, can give you some guidance. But again, that guidance is very infallible, scripture alone. So if you say, God, I feel like uh, uh, I should sleep with this girl before getting married. Okay, that's, that's not from God. Okay, that scripture clearly says no. So, but that's not prophecy. Why label that prophecy? Why not just say, it's an impression that I have, right? Why take it to the next level and call it prophecy? That's, that's, that's the argument I, I, w- I would contend. Um, and then, look at 1 Corinthians 14. We've already read this verse, actually. Right? When two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. And then listen, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. What does he say about prophecy? Verse 30, I've underlined it. It's a revelation. What prophets say is revelation. If it is revelation, it is God's word. God's word cannot fail. It is infallible. It is authoritative. And therefore, it has ceased. Because the New Testament writings have ceased. Okay, uh, Harry or Chow, do you guys want to follow up with the question? Or did I answer um, would you say then that like, I, I guess because we had this, uh, this talk before in, in one of John Lewis' classes and, and then uh, he's saying how like sometimes people will come to you and they're very specific with like pointing out certain things in your life not just like you know it might happen but like it will happen or, or yeah or, or like I you'll get married you'll get blonde her name will be Sally <laughs> right <laughs> Or just pointing things out that no one else would know. Yeah. Um, so would maybe would that just be like a, maybe like a random guess? Or? Yeah, it could be one of several things. Uh, Me as a rationalist, rationalist, I might say, oh, you just got lucky. <laughs> but um, it could be intuitive insights. Mm-hmm. You know, like fortune tellers have that ability. Um, it could be that um, you have this insight, but it's not prophecy. Why label it? Pro- That's my contention. Is that prophecy? Because again, prophecy is thus saith the Lord. It's 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 the word of God. If if someone says to you, This is what's gonna happen, you should write it down and say, I'm going to obey this word, because this is God's word to me. So let's say let's say like um Grudem's mindset is like accurate. Let's say like there are people who are like lowercase P prophets and then they go around <laughs> and then, cause then like I've been to like like classes for this before in college and then they're like Oh, like, there's three things you should always stay away from, like, relationships, children, and there's something else. Basically, things that are, like, super, like, you know, life-changing and stuff like that. So then they'll, like, talk about, like, oh, like you're going to be a leader on your campus and stuff like that. So I think, like, what if, like, there's just some lowercase p prophets that, like, that just don't tread as cautiously and they feel, they feel like, more, like, a compelled that what they their intuitions are are from God. Like, yeah. and they're just kind of, like, basically, like, yeah, I want to I, 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 I I piggyback on that because, again, I, I would contest this whole idea that there is lowercase prophecy. I don't believe there is. I think that's an unbiblical category. Prove to me this is a biblical category before you say that. But let's just suppose that there is this kind of people with intuitions, right? You know, they're, 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 they, they, you know, they have these impressions from God. When they say, I'm a prophet, I think this opens up to enormous abuse. This is really my another objection I have. Because they say, I'm a prophet of God. Now, if you're a prophet of God, even though you say, oh, I'm a Wayne Grudem prophet of God, I'm fallible, I make mistakes, but nevertheless, you have an, a certain kind of authority, right? I mean, I'm a pastor, right? I have a lot of authority as a pastor, a God-given authority. So I say to you, Eric Chow, you know, I see this sin in your life, you need to stop. I say this as your pastor, you should stop, you should obey me. But if I say to you, Eric Chow, um, 
you dress, you, you need to wear a necktie every Sunday. I command you to do it as a pastor, right? You can say to me, well, I don't know, Pastor Michael, you're kind of abusing your authority here. Where in the scripture does it say you have to wear a necktie? And so my authority cannot supersede scriptural authority, right? But a prophet, he's not tethered to scripture because it's revelation. So a prophet could say, Eric Child, you must wear a tie. And what are you going to say? What do you say to a prophet who claims this level of authority? You say, okay, you're a prophet. And I think a lot of times this is where prophets totally abuse their power because they're just making stuff up. And all kinds of heretics, I mean, I want to tread very carefully with my charismatic brothers here, but honestly, almost all heretics come from charismatic camps. It it does, you know, because they're not tethered to scripture. They're free to float because they're prophets. So I think it really, really opens itself to abuse. And so I think, you know, a lot of people say the cessationist is you guys are just super safe. You just want seatbelt on, you put on safety helmet. You just want to be safe. You want to be boxed in. You know, you don't want to experiment. Well, okay, maybe you say that, but we're not going to go to crazy heresies. We're always tethered to scripture. Uh, what would uh, Grunem's rebuttal to what you said about his little pea prophets? Like? He has a biblical example. He does? Yeah. I'll other than this First Corinthians 14. Yeah, other than that. Okay. Alright. Any, uh, oh, by the way. Oh, are you going to go over it? Or yeah, I am. Oh, okay. By the way. <laughs> by the way. Oh, I really want to get in a little bit into tongues, but we'll see if that can happen. But by the way, um, the other objection I have is that this lower level prophecy has to do with personal, individualized messages for people's lives. And I think that this is really an abuse of of an unbiblical understanding of prophecy. Because if you look at every example of prophecy in the New Testament and Old Testament, it has to do with epic, redemptive, historical, salvation events. It's not personal, little, like, I have a prophecy for you, that accounting job you've been waiting for is going to open up. I mean, that's goody good for you, but what does it have to do with God's unfolding redemptive plan? And so I think, again, they are completely abused uh, 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 the, 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 the office of prophet it is for the unfolding revelation of, for the church and I think what that ends up happening again and this is another side uh, practical objection is that people start to downplay and sort of it, it, it reduces the sufficiency of scripture because the, the Bible specifically says, right, Second Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, right, all scriptures God breathed and is used for teaching, you know, correction, uh, building up the saints. Scripture is enough. Now, scripture is not going to tell you which job you should get or which girl you should marry, okay? But that's because you need to have some principles, you know, and faith. And, you, you know, you, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith, you know? Which job should I go? I don't know. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to really think that I'm going to consult my Christian brothers. But, you know, prophecy is so easy. Prophet, which one should I take? Oh, you should take this job. Oh, great. It becomes kind of like a magic eight ball, I think. You know, again, I don't want to be disrespectful to my continuationist brothers, but I feel like it's kind of like you want the easy answers. There are no easy answers in life. Life is tough. Life requires faith. Life requires prayer thinking, prophecy is really kind of a weird shortcut. And that shortcut didn't even exist in the New Testament. Nobody said, you know, you know, Timothy didn't say, oh, which, where should I go, prophet town, you know? Uh, 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 uh. It always had to do with these epic events. Anyways, let's go to the counter example. So, this is Wayne Grudem's example. Uh, 
Acts chapter 21. If you look at verse 4, okay, um, so let me set this up a little bit. Uh, if you're not familiar with Acts, what happens is the latter half of the story of Acts is uh, pretty much Paul marching to Jerusalem, right? Because he's, he's collected all of this money for the saints, the, the poor in Jerusalem. And everywhere he goes, everyone's like, uh, I mean, uh, the Spirit is telling him to go. But uh, everyone knows that if he goes, he's going to be arrested, tortured, imprisoned, and then shipped to the, the, to the Romans, possibly killed. So everyone's like, please don't go, Paul, please don't go, please don't go. And, um, but Paul says the Spirit has sent me, right? Because you can see that in verse 23 of chapter 20, the first paragraph. He says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city. I'm sorry, wrong verse. <laughs> uh, verse 22, right? And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. So the Spirit tells Paul, go to Jerusalem. And then look with me to Acts 21.4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they, this is Paul's friends, uh, entire, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And so Wayne Grudem says, there you go. There's your example. The These believers, through the Spirit, tells Paul, don't go. Paul deliberately disobeys them. Why? And he goes to Jerusalem anyway. Why? Because they're mistaken. So that's an example of mistaken prophecy, right? Um, okay. Well, that's one example. And the second, my, that's, my, that's my first point. One of eight points. My second point is, I think that's a misreading of the passage. And I really think that you really need to read the whole passage in its entire context and you completely understand what's going on. So, here's the better way to go about it. Um, let's go back to Acts chapter 20, right? Paul says that he's constrained by the Spirit to go, and then he says, verse 20, to be accepted, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. All right, so this is what's going on. Do you guys remember when Paul was first commissioned as an apostle? Jesus said, I want you to go and preach the gospel to the ends of the world. Right? We, we saw that Acts 1.8. Um, and Paul knows this is his mission. And he knows that going to Jerusalem is part of that fulfilling of the mission. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be handed over to the Romans. The Romans are going to ship him to Rome. And by that kind of weird, roundabout, suffering path, Paul is going to fulfill the mission because he's going to preach the gospel in Rome in, in chains, right? But the whole time Paul is marching to Jerusalem, the Spirit tells him, Paul, when you go, you're going to be in prison. When you go, you're going to be tortured. When you go, you're going to suffer. And the Spirit is not saying that to tell him, don't go. The Spirit is telling them to letting him know this is what it's going to cost. What's more valuable to you, Paul? Obeying Jesus or your life? Uh, listen to what uh, Jesus says in Acts 9. This is verse 15. I don't have it for you, but let me just listen. Go, for he is a chosen instrument. He's talking to, um, oh gosh, Anna. No, I forget your Bible knowledge. Uh, uh, Acts 9, he's speaking to this, uh, this, this 
this guy who, 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 who's supposed to relate us to Paul. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's, mission, Paul's apostolic calling was to suffer for the name of Christ. Okay? Now, let's go to Acts 21, which immediately follows the, the, the first paragraph. So he goes to the city of Tyre, right? And we read that verse, right? And through the Spirit, the, 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 the Christians there were telling Paul not to go. And then let's skip down to verse uh, uh, 8, okay? On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound him bound his feet and said, his feet and hands, and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Two quick comments right there. First of all, here's an example of New Testament prophecy. And Wayne Grudem and others say, you know, New Testament prophecy is a lower kind. It's not, Thus saith the Lord. It says, Thus saith the Holy Spirit. If you're a Trinitarian, if you're an Orthodox Christian, Holy Spirit is God. Thus saith the Holy Spirit, same thing as thus saith God, right? So, you know, Agabus, what is Agabus saying? He's saying, this is the word of God. This is revelation. This is what the Holy Spirit says. And then this is what he says. He says, when you go to Jerusalem, you're, they're going to bind you. You're going to suffer, right? And then listen to the reaction. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Right? Because imagine you're Paul's friend. You're Luke. You love Paul. He is your dear, dear friend. And Agabus the prophet, and you know he's a prophet, so he's not going to make any mistakes. He says, you will be in prison, you will suffer. And what do you say as Paul's friend? You say, oh, Paul, I don't want you to suffer. Paul, you have, don't go, don't go. Stay with us, stay safe. You can preach here. Don't go there, right? What, look what Paul says in verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now, that's the context. Now, how can we understand um, 21.4, going back up? I think this is what's going on. Luke is speaking in shorthand. He's not going to repeat himself over and over and over again. He's a quick, quick writer. And so he says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Here's my interpretation. This is an interpretation, by the way, which is the consensus interpretation. This is the this is the interpretation accepted by the majority of evangelical scholars, is that the Spirit told the Christians, the prophets there, Paul is going to suffer. And based on that understanding, they do the exact same thing they did with Agabus and Caesarea, which is based on the prophecy that he will suffer. They said, Paul, don't go, don't go. It's not that the Spirit is telling them to tell Paul not to go. They're using the prophecy as a, a reason to tell Paul not to go. Does that make sense? Otherwise, otherwise, we run into some major, major, major problems. You know, that Wayne Grudem is uh, uh, charismatic to say, aha, it's an example of fallible prophecy. Okay, but if that's, if that's, if, if the Spirit's wrong there, how do we not know that Spirit's wrong in many other places? Right? Like, how do we distinguish the Spirit telling Paul go from the Spirit telling Paul not to go? If the Spirit is contradicting itself, Wow, we're in a we're in a world of hurt. How do we know, right? I mean, then we enter this really psychedelic, murky world where the spirit contradicts itself, or we we can never know, you know. 
And so I think this is a much, much preferred example. This is the only example that Wayne drew in the other side. And I think there's a very plausible, very understandable explanation. Um, wow, I really wanted to go into a little bit of tongues. Tongues is so fun. But um, um, any, any example. By the way, here again is an example that all prophecy is not personalized messages. Oh, Paul, you personally, you're going to suffer. No, it has to do with redemptive history because Paul going to Rome is the unfolding of Jesus' mission because Paul preaches the gospel in uh, Rome, which is a representative of all the worlds because all the ethnicities live there, right? Um, any questions or comments? Have I persuaded you? Again, I'm always an emphatic person. Christina always says, Michael, you only have two levels, yelling and screaming. Um, <laughs> so please don't take my emph- emphaticness as like, this is super serious. It's not super serious. It's fun. Alright? If you disagree with me, it's cool. Let's hug. But it's not... We shouldn't, you know... Just want to let you know. Any questions or comments? Chow. Tub. (laughs) Chewy. So this is the only argument that Grudem has for his little pea prophet. You can read... I mean, I'm summarizing it. Uh So this is the gist of his argument. He's got many more words. Um, You can read his systematic theology. He has a a lengthy argument there. It's like 40, 30 pages. I read through it. He actually has written also book-length arguments for it. But this is essentially his argument. This This is it. His argument is this. The lesser. That's what continues. I think that's he's on really shaky biblical ground. I really do. Any any other comments or questions? All right, next week we're going to talk about tongues, exciting. Um, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, this Bible lesson um, that you have spoken to us. And uh, whether or not we believe that there's prophets today, we definitely know that. Um, you have spoken to us once and for all in Scripture. We know that we have the Gospel, and, and that's what an what a incredible comfort that is to go to Scripture and to be able to, to, to know that you love us, that you care for us, and to find guidance for life, how to live a holy life, how to live a life that pleases you. And we pray that we would really be lovers of Scripture. Uh, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Right, thank you, guys. Um,